Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel debates whether metformin should still be first line for all patients with type 2 diabetes and discusses the role of GLP-1 agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors in these patients. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic Learner School of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board. Dr. Reed Blackwelder from East Tennessee State University, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on January 23rd, 2023. And now, the CE information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Stephen Nissen reports a relevant financial relationship by receiving grants or research support from AbbVie, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Esperion, Medtronic, Novartis, Pfizer, and Silence Therapeutics. The other speakers you'll hear have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. We're talking about this now because you'll hear debate about whether metformin should still be first line for all patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, the American Diabetes Association just released their 2023 standards of care earlier this month with some tweaks in the recommendations for first-line glucose-lowering medications. And this is raising questions about metformin and its benefits beyond glucose-lowering. So, Steve, can you get us started on how metformin has become the gold standard first-line therapy for glucose-lowering? Well, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was only one trial that showed any drug to have any clear cardiovascular benefits. And that was a sub-study of the UK PDS study. And because there was an absence of evidence for anything else, metformin got established. And of course, as I think most people know, it's pretty good at reducing HbA1c. And for decades, the goal of diabetes therapy was to lower HbA1c. And metformin did that with more a durability than sulfonylureas, which, which sort of ran out of gas after a year or so. So it kind of got locked into that first line role and then it became generic and so it became very inexpensive and nobody wanted to take it off of that first line list. You know, we say in our article, Steve, this um, second paragraph here, metformin also has possible cardiovascular benefits. And we've been you know, wondering about whether that we should include the word possible cardiovascular benefits or if uh, that's the right descriptor for, for how we would uh, categorize its cardiovascular benefits. What do you think about that, that specific possible word? Strong as I would, as I would use. Um, because, okay. you know, again, if you look at the size and it, it wasn't even the primary outcome that was looked at, it was a subgroup of diabetics in the UK PDS that had a benefit. And I think the p-value was very close to 0.05. I mean, it was barely there. Uh, it would not be anywhere near good enough to get an FDA label 
for cardiovascular benefits in today's world. Mm -hmm. And Craig, would you like to add anything? Yes, please do. Yeah, sure. They, I can almost say here, like metformin may also have possible. Yeah, you can hedge mm. your bet as far as you want there. But uh, yes, yes. In preparing for this piece, I went back and reread an editorial I wrote a few years ago titled "Metformin Does Not Prevent Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease," and and I agreed with everything I said five years ago. In twenty seventeen, right? Yes, yeah, right. So I'm still very much. And the study that Steve alludes to was very flawed, and it was the subsidy of obese patients. And but the people that didn't get metformin got some sulfonylureas and insulin, and had some hypoglycemia, and it was very messy. So I've mm -hmm. I've been in the camp that metformin is still a good agent for lowering A1C without causing much hypoglycemia, but yeah, I've never attributed any cardiovascular benefits to it myself. Okay, well let's put metformin aside for a moment and talk about uh, the agents that are gaining more traction um, and have robust cardiovascular outcome trials. So those would be the GLP-1 agonist and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. So Steve, um, can you comment on uh, the uh, strength of evidence for these agents in terms of cardiorenal outcomes? Well, I think that the, the probably the data for SGLT-2 inhibitors is a little bit stronger, particularly for renal outcomes. It's really kind of an amazing class of drugs uh, in the sense that there's a heart failure benefit, there's a atherosclerotic disease benefit, you know, MI, there's a death benefit in some of the studies. Renal benefits are clearly very well established for multiple drugs in the class. The evidence is not quite as good for the GLP-1 agonists, at least not for this generation of agonists. I was on the executive committee for the leader trial. The hazard ratio was 0.87. It was good. I didn't hit it out of the park. Uh, none of the, uh, you know, uh, the GLP-1 agonist studies were outstanding. And in fact, the semaglutide study was frankly too small. And so it wasn't as robust as it needed to be. However, one can certainly say that both classes have evidence of benefit. But keep in mind, the one thing, other thing that metformin has is it's like $3 a month drug. And so part of the problem has been to get patients on these other drugs because payers are not so eager to, to pay for them. For sure, for sure. So I uh, definitely want to go into some of the uh, downsides of these agents. But I also want to talk about this next line here, which we say um, mounting data now suggests this is independent of metformin. And, um, you know, we have gotten a lot of feedback on that phrase. Um, folks wanting more, wanting us to say more about what is this mounting data? What type of data are we looking at? So we've added a second line uh, beyond this, and a fresh paragraph um, in the article as it stands today, which says, and mounting data suggests these benefits are independent of metformin, dot, 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 a little uh, 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 phrase there to pull, pull these two thoughts together. And that then we say, based on subgroups of pooled analysis of cardiovascular studies. And so what, what are your thoughts there, Steve and Craig? I'd like to hear from both of you about um, based on subgroups and pooled analysis of cardiovascular studies. So I'm gonna quote my, my dear friend and the world's greatest statistician, Tom Fleming, who said, mm -hmm. let me study enough subgroups and I'll show you anything you want. Sure. And I don't think we make good decisions when we make these decisions based upon subgroups. If somebody wants to make this claim, and they need to do a trial uh, appropriately designed where 
they can show, where you can show that it's independent of whether metformin is on board or not. That's not a hard design. It's probably expensive, and it can be done, but it hasn't been done. And in the absence of that, we should be very careful. Yeah, Craig, I'll just say, I, yeah, I mean, Steve's right from a data standpoint. Steve's right. I do think, you know, I always talk in class and training, like, is there biologic plausibility to what we're seeing in some subgroup? And, you know, there's no reason to think you need metformin on board. These other agents to work, and there's enough patients in these trials that don't tolerate metformin that, you know, the subgroups are semi-robust. But, you know, Steve's right. You need to take that hypothesis and enter it in a new trial. But, yeah, I don't, as far as moving away from metformin first line towards the other drugs, I would, I'd say I'm comfortable saying I don't have to be on metformin to get the renal benefits of SGLT2 or whatever benefits may be there for a GLP-1. But, you know, Steve, it's, it's an inexpensive drug that's generally well tolerated, and people mm -hmm. could successfully argue that there's not good reasons to move away from it in a lot of patients. But, but yeah, I, I would accept this possibility that I don't have to be on metformin these other drugs to work. But I feel right, better if you said you probably don't have to be because, again, yes. Yes. You, know, you know, it's not, um, we, these data don't have the integrity of randomization, which I, mm -hmm. I think all of us agree is the gold standard. And we just don't have it. I'd also point out that not only is metformin very good at lowering HbA1c, it's well tolerated and, yeah. and it has pretty good durability. And, you know, there's lots of things about it with a long track record that make me not 100% comfortable with just throwing it into the trash. Mm -hmm. And so mounting data now suggests that this is independent metformin. Do you think we should soften that to say, you know, some data now suggests this is independent of metformin? I think we, when we get down further in the article, we'll, we have a, a, some new wording, which would be, you know, it's okay to use these without metformin, but we would really prefer for, you know, to use the combo um, for most patients. So I we'll get down to that. Make it softer than that. I would personally say preliminary non-randomized data. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now that's great. And we'll get to work on that. This has been tough because we could write a whole piece just on sort of like what this data is, that what these data are. And so, so Craig, um, what can you comment? And we're getting questions, you know, about the ADA coming out, you know, with uh, SGLT2s and GLP1s uh, first line therapy for some of these folks with comorbidities um, and bringing it on a, on a parallel with, with metformin in some cases. What, what are your thoughts about um, the ADA's position on that? Yeah, it's, I mean, and there's, you know, grades of evidence the ADA offers for their guidelines, as do most people writing guidelines these days. And they know they can't give that the highest. As Steve says, we don't have the data for that. But it is a group of experts. And the only thing I'll kind of add to this is, and Steve alluded to this earlier, I'm fairly impressed with SGLT2s, especially mm -hmm. for renal disease. I think for heart failure too, it's pretty, getting pretty hard to deny that benefit. So, but, and there again, you know, there's, there's some plausibility to why SGLT2s help patients with CKD. So if they have, if they can afford their SGLT2 and they have CKD, I would absolutely be okay with not being on metformin first to do that because that, that drug and that disease really do make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, but I go back to Steve's comment too, that met, it's metformin's a good drug. So if an insurer wants to push back and say, we still want you on metformin to get that A1C benefit, it's it's hard to say, you know, like, no, no, I have to mm -hmm. use this drug first line. But I, mm -hmm. clinically, I'm I'm especially okay with that one because I like the data and the, and the biological 
explanation is there. And generally, okay. I'm more in the SJT camp than GLP-1s, as Steve comes to, too, that okay. data really is solid. Craig, I, I agree with everything you just said. That's great. Great summary. So, Andy, I want to hear from you. I know you've got some thoughts here, and I'm wondering, what are you seeing in your hospitalized patients? Are you seeing a shift away from metformin uh, on home med lists for your hospitalized patients? Uh, you know, I have not seen a shift away yet. Um, uh, I think the if they can afford uh, mm -hmm. the line that was just said is a really, really big issue um, mm -hmm. because because what is afford? Now, I mean, there are people for uh, my patients that they have a $2 copay for everything and they're, they're, it's essentially cost neutral. But for people that are paying $200, $300 for these meds, they are stopping other things or they're taking them for half a month. And it's a, it's a very real thing. And I think we mm -hmm. should make sure we're not overlooking the difference of uh, 1000 versus $4. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, um, I wanted to hear from you, Reed. How are you applying some of these new medications in your primary care practices? So it, it, they are exciting. The data is, is excellent. I know we're talking a lot about lowering a, A1C. I, I prefer mm -hmm. to think in terms of looking for the evidence that decreases cardiovascular morbidity mortality, because that's really where I want to see the, the outcomes data, not just a number. So I, my, the problem with this, though, is as Andy has said, and all of us has said, whether you can afford it or not, uh, our, I'm in a, um, a set of family medicine residencies and patients have um, Medicaid and they're not being covered by insurers right now. Um, so it is going to be a challenging shift, even though the data is robust. Um, I guess the other thing I'll throw out here, I know it's not really necessarily part of this this this, this discussion, but you know, I, I'm trying very hard to get my my learners to recognize that Pre-diabetes is a spectrum on a bad thing, and you don't wait for the light switch to go off at 6.5. When I trained, we never treated pre-diabetes with meds. That was sort of the rule of thumb. And now, of course, we really much more aggressive. So it's mm -hmm. nice to have these as options, but they're not going to be the cost-effective one. I think um, we all in the call agree that uh, we don't want to throw it out yet and just uh, move to these newer agents first line. And uh, we do have some wording in our article about the downsides of GLP-1 agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. You know, we have uh, things that I, I think everybody would agree with, that they can, GLP-1 agonists can cause GI side effects, and they carry warnings such as pancreatitis or gallbladder disease. And like we said, they're very expensive. Uh, and of course, um, we do know that there have been shortages with the GLP-1s recently because of their weight loss benefits, and many folks have been trying to get a hold of them for those reasons. And then we're very familiar with the SGLT2 downsides um, with volume depletion, genital yeast infections, et cetera. And actually, Andy, I wanted to call on you because we do talk a lot about these uh, downsides to these newer agents, and I'm curious if you're seeing any of these, any patients who are admitted with any of these problems or um, you know, if, if, if that's something that's popped up on your radar. Uh, yes, is the short answer. I mean, uh, as a hospitalist, I see a lot of people with infections. Uh, you know, I am obviously in no position to say that these cause uh, uh, infections any more than anything else, but the trials do show us that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they generally get stopped whenever we have an infection in-house, in just like uh, almost all the diabetes medicines we should right. to follow regimen. But, uh, right. But yes. let, me, let me jump in a second, Laurie, and say yes, that I, several of my patients develop very severe urinary tract infections on SGLT2 inhibitors, including one patient that had a life-threatening infection. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think we can dismiss that. And, you know, you know in this um, enthusiasm, we've got to recognize that there are upsides and downsides. Now, look, if you've got renal disease, 
that's progressing, you know, you the drug is worth worth the downside. These risks, yes. Uh, we've got to be careful. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I kind of like the way you said that, that earlier statement about when in the paradigm that uh, metformin ought to appear, that it, it shouldn't be always be metformin first. We ought to have an open mind about what's the best first drug, and we ought to customize it for individual patients. But we can't, uh, we can't ignore the problem. The, the patient that I had happen to was elderly and was found on the floor in their home, mm-hmm. you know, septic. Uh, and it was clearly a UTI related to an SGLT2 inhibitor and was very nearly life-threatening. So we do have some um, revised wording. We, in, If you uh, uh, get a little bit further down in the article, we say tailor first-line meds based on comorbidities, preferences, et cetera. And um, we've revised that a little bit now to say tailor first-line meds based on comorbidities, preferences, et cetera, but consider practicality. And then metformin is often needed in combo. Um, and then maybe we would want to say um, something a little bit more that we, do, we maybe we do even want to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We sometimes use that sort of wording. It's um, very, um, would resonate with a lot of people. So I think getting a little bit more of that context back in here, I think will be helpful. Craig, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, so I don't think we're too much at risk of uh, people. I mean, it's going to be a pretty slow moving away from metformin for mm-hmm. the reasons that it's. Tried yep. and true. It's, I mean, the mechanism works across just about all type two diabetics. The A1C lowering sometimes can be quite impressive. So, uh, but I like you know Steve's statement that it's time to be in the. It's not first line for everyone. Like it should not be automatic anymore. It's first line for everyone. There's not a knee jerk for everybody. Good data. Yeah, exactly. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it shouldn't still be first line for the vast vast majority. And if someone's in the, it's my first line drug nine percent of the time. Even that, think that's okay for now. But again, there's just yeah. too much data with these newer drugs to ignore them. So let's talk about some of these uh, special comorbidities where we do have this very robust data with these other agents. So the first uh, one that we have uh, listed in the article is cardiovascular disease or those with multiple cardiovascular risks. And uh, we make the statement to consider starting with the GLP-1 agonist with cardiovascular benefit, and we list those. Um, or to reduce those cardiovascular events, or to start with an SGLT2 inhibitor to reduce cardiovascular events or heart failure. Um, and so, Steve, your thoughts here. Um, one point I want to make is that we have specifically listed the GLP-1s with benefit, and then we've made the point that we believe we have a class effect in terms of cardiovascular benefit with SGLT2s. What are your thoughts on those two points? Well, I have a couple of them. One is that I'm a little surprised that you you called out the GLP-1 agonist first for cardiovascular benefit because mm-hmm. I don't think they're necessarily a superior first choice for cardiovascular patients compared with SGLT2 inhibitors. I think they're certainly more likely equivalent. Please keep in mind that that the blockbuster EMPA-REG trial had a mortality advantage mm-hmm. with, uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitor in cardiovascular patients that we yeah. have seen elsewhere. The other thing is, is that I think liraglutide is an obsolete drug. You know, a drug you've got to give once a day when you've got two pretty comparably priced drugs that are once a week. I think liraglutide kind of goes away. So I'm not sure I would consider that as. Yeah. 
you know, our approach is usually alphabetical unless there's a good reason to, uh, you know, from a number needed to treat or an acceptability or a cost standpoint. And you could argue that SGLT2s have uh, benefits because they're oral and they're less expensive than GLP-1s. So that's kind of, you know, how we go about it, uh, Steve. And generally we list the groups alphabetically. So um, Craig, what are your thoughts here in terms of uh, the order of listing and um, how we might frame that for our readers? Yeah, I mean, in general, again, I think this, well, when you say CV benefit, are we supposed to be separating atherosclerotic carbacillus from CHF or then it's a broad? Yes. So our next broad. section is about, is about heart, it, is, our next underline is heart failure. So we did separate that out um, to yeah. have a, a specific example here with heart failure to say evaluate using SGLT2 inhibitors as the first diabetes med to reduce the risk of heart failure, hospitalization, cardiovascular death. And then, you know, we'll come next to our cardiorenal, or I'm sorry, our renal, renal patients. Yeah. And, and so, um, again, I think uh, we do have that represented, you know, with the vascular versus the um, heart failure benefits here and just <clears throat> making sure that's in line with what you were thinking, Craig. If, I mean, if that last CV slide was was ASCVD in particular, I agree with Steve. Yeah. It's uh, you know, and going to an injectable versus an oral is a pretty big difference for patients. So um, yeah, I don't know if I'd pick one. I still for the ASCVD yeah. benefits. Uh, I'm still in the you know blood pressure and statin and stop smoking, and that might go back a little bit to right. yeah, these drugs are good. But I I'm just less sold on the ASCVD benefit compared to CHF and renal. So I don't disagree with that. And I think it's fine list alphabetically, but uh, there's so many other comorbidities that I think mm -hmm. we should work on first for ASCVD. And Andy, you wanted to uh, jump in too with, in terms of acceptability here. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a line for patients about taking an injection. They will take uh, a nearly worthless another oral uh, uh, before they'll oh. even consider an injection. And it's it's kind of frustrating, but it's just there's something about that, uh, uh, crossing that line for patients with insulin or or GLPs that I, mm -hmm. I find patients will will just say, no, 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 the pill's fine, but that's that's mm -hmm. something I won't do. And we didn't mention that, but that's a, that's a big barrier for patients. And, uh, Reed, I just wonder if you can comment on that too there in, in your practice. Is that something that, you know, is a common barrier? Oh, absolutely. That yeah, yes. it, it's it's hard to overcome, and it's very real. Okay, and so then our next underlying section is about renal benefits, and I think we've sort of covered these already. But uh, keeping in mind that the SGLT2 inhibitors do have, um, uh, you know, uh, outweigh um, the GLP1s in terms of uh, renal benefits, um, and uh, just Steve confirming that you would agree with that. The GLP1 data are really um, for renal benefits are still preliminary. Yeah, they don't have the same kind of quality as we have for the randomized controlled trials with SGLT2 inhibitors. And they probably are good drugs to give these people, but I think you got to go where the stronger evidence is first. And boy, it just blows you away when you look at the data on SGLT2 inhibitors and renal disease. And uh, I'm trying to get people, which everybody who has a, a reduced EGFR with diabetes, I certainly try to get them on it. And and frankly, they're they're pretty good drugs to consider in people, even if they don't have diabetes. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, that is a surprising yeah. point. I was yeah. that that's the CKD and non-diabetics has been surprising. It just kind of reinforces the data for diabetes with CKD. And Craig, that leads me to an audience question we're getting here. And you know, 
you know, are we really considering the benefits of these agents independent of their glucose lowering effects? Because, you know, we're used to looking at A1C reduction and the SGLT2s have, you know, a, a lesser A1C reduction than the GLP1s and the metformin, but really we're kind of thinking about these outside of their glucose lowering benefits. Would you agree yes. with that? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, the other thing with the uh, A1C, I don't know if we brought up, you know, the older trials tend to have higher A1Cs at baseline. So I think the perception mm -hmm. that some of these newer drug classes don't lower A1C as much is somewhat a anachronism of any trial in the last 20 years. You couldn't have a control group with A1C of 9.5. That's no longer ethical. So, mm -hmm. and in general, the higher the baseline A1C and the worse the glycemic control, the better any of these drugs will do for that patient. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we even, are even, even a DPP-4 inhibitor actually looks efficacious. Study people yeah. one season. When you're adding, right. yeah. Yeah. Even, though, even though in people that are reasonably close to, to control, it's a placebo. <laughs> so mm -hmm. and we didn't even talk about that class. I, I, but no. you know, it's still the most prescribed class of diabetes drugs out there. Yes. Yes. All time. Do the great thing. Number yes. one selling drug, and it's worthless. Back to uh, the point of people will take an, another less than effective yeah. oral agent before switching to an injectable, right? Because they don't want quote the needle. You know, it's a very much a perception thing. You know, we do have a rev some revised wording um, in the middle of this piece that says that's why guidelines recommend these newer agents for quote compelling indications in type two diabetes, independent or regardless of glucose lowering effects. So to to make that point in there, and I just uh, wanted to run that wording by you too. Um, that if you do think, Craig, that we should make the caveat that this is, you know, independent of its glucose-lowering effects. Yes, and I think for certain drug conditions, even more so. But yeah, in particular yeah. for SGL, and if you're going to move away from metformin first in everybody somewhere, like the first one, in my opinion, would be CKD diabetic patients. You can absolutely make a case for SGLT2 separate mm -hmm. from metformin. And yeah, the mechanism explains that it does, you do not need to lower A1C to get the renal benefits. We understand what's doing the afferent arterial, and there's a so the mechanism explains the benefit, not the A1C lowering. Right. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.